Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Slate's Audiobook Club is brought to you by Fun Home, winner of five Tony Awards, including Best Musical. The Associated Press calls this groundbreaking production the best of what Broadway can do. Get tickets at funhomebroadway.com. And by Audible.com, with more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook at audiblepodcast.com slash slateabc. Hello, and welcome to this month's installment of the Slate Audiobook Club, where a rotating cast of critics discusses the books on everyone's minds. I'm your host, Katie Waldman, the words correspondent at Slate, and I'm joined today by Megan O'Rourke, writer and critic for many places, including Slate. Hi, Megan. Hi. And also by Parul Segal of the New York Times Book Review and the New York Times Magazine. Hello. Hey, Katie. We've got a great show for you today. We'll be discussing When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi, the memoir of a neurosurgeon who received a terminal cancer diagnosis at 36. In this graceful, learned, and moving book, Kalanithi charts his journey from doctor to patient and seeks out an understanding of what makes a virtuous, meaningful life. I should mention that he died in March of 2015. His book has since become a bestseller with an epilogue by his wife, Lucy, and a foreword by the writer and doctor, Abraham Verges. Something that surprised me about When Breath Becomes Air was the extent to which it was a textbook or an educational text. It delivered at least two types of knowledge. It straightforwardly told me things I didn't know, such as the fact that there is a verb, burke, for killing someone so that you can sell the body to medical students for dissection. And it made real and present things that I knew intellectually but had not entirely assimilated or appreciated with my whole being, such as the fact of mortality. Um, So I thought it might be fun to start with each of us saying one thing this book taught us that we didn't really know or comprehend before. I think in a a more sort of like macro way, 
something I learned from this book is um, how much sometimes knowledge doesn't prepare you for things, right? Because here's somebody who intellectually had been, you know, studying death and been close to the body, and when it comes to his own body and his own death, um, how much does that help him in this book? I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, um, there was a lot in this book that was actually sort of terrifyingly familiar to me. Um, But even given that, you know, there is this way in which I think part of my fascination with the literature of of death and dying and hospitals and illness um, comes from the fact that, you know, and he talks about this really, really eloquently, you know, even as you know that, this is going to happen to you, even as it is happening to you, there is still this kind of moment, these moments of intellectualizing, right? And these moments yeah. where in the book, he's very, very ill and has a terminal diagnosis. He's responding to the therapy and he starts to make 10 year plans where the reader kind of is thinking, wow, you know, this is, you know, we know the end of the story. So there's a little poignancy to it. So I thought that was one of the, the strengths of the book. And I've read a lot of cancer memoirs and we can talk more about the genre later, but um, the medical stuff, just the, the part of him being a medical student and a resident and being a neurosurgeon, that was just wonderfully observed. And I loved that, that same detail you picked out, Katie, about the Burke. I did not know about the Burke, that to, you know, to kill, to kill somebody in order to use their, yeah, use their body. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was just, uh, he has such a wide ranging uh, set of interests and such a ranging mind too. I love that he was so excellent in his calling and his chosen profession as a neurosurgeon, but also so curious about everything else from literature to philosophy. I felt like he was trying, uh, like you could feel his ambition to really paint as full a picture of human experience and of the world that he could. And I did end up feeling like this was a very satisfying and fulfilling book. And it was a very full book, like kind of stuffed to the brim. It's interesting. I think, you know, for me, um, a couple of things really stuck out. And, and and as you guys know, but maybe our listeners don't know, so I've written a book about grief and about my mother dying of cancer. And a lot of this book is actually about sort of the mechanics of cancer. She had a different cancer from the one that he had, but I was, and I'm not a doctor, but part of the experience that he captured so wonderfully that I think is true for a lot of people, whether or not you're a patient or a doctor, you know, one of his points is once you become a patient, you're no longer the doctor, right? Is just the way that you become immersed in this kind of vocabulary and procedural, these procedural aspects of cancer that are very, so, so difficult to deal with. And actually, there's another book out right now, Charles Bach's novel about a, a young woman dying of leukemia that I read just before reading this. And so I just feel immersed in that, that world of cancer. I think, you know, one of the things that really that is unique about this book is its combination of being a patient narrative and a doctor narrative, right? So that he is able to at once really talk incredibly eloquently about the doctor-patient relationship. And because, as you're saying, he was such a humanist, right? He studied philosophy. He wanted to be a writer. He loves poetry. There's a lot of poetry in this book. He really is a wonderful and I think probably highly unusual guide to the moral aspect of medicine, right? Which is an aspect we really don't talk enough about. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I mean, I, I feel like I have a few more reservations about this book that I feel churlish bringing up. But I mean, no, I have some too. You know, <laughs> yeah, we'll get into it as respectfully as possible. But 
I mean, so he, he has, as you both have said, so many different registers. There's the doctor, there's the patient, there's the sort of great lover of literature and poetry. And I mean, I think some of these registers are more successful than others. I think I love yeah. him on science. I love him on when he is in the lab, like sort of in the in the operating theater, when he's describing cutting into the brain. Those are some of the most incredibly beautiful passages I've read all year. You know, it's just because he's also not convincing us of its importance or its interest. He is interested in it. It's important to him, and those sections just flow for me. I think I had a little bit more trouble when he starts to plumb things for meaning, especially literature. I don't think he's as strong on um, sort of looking at what literature can teach us about dying and death and meaning. Um, and the parts of this book that, that gave me pause feel... Um, I don't they feel narrated by his super ego. Like a lot of the book for me feels like yeah. this is how I want to be remembered. You know, this is what I did. This is what I was not able to accomplish. A lot of the book, I mean, his great love affair is, is with his work. And so at least in my reading, you know, so the great quandary in the book is, okay, shall I return to work? Okay, now I'm, I'm working and I'm ill. How am I going to manage it? That's the great loss we feel like he's not going to be able to, you know, live according to this 40-year plan that he'd built, that 20 years as a doctor, then 20 years as a writer. And, you know, we see him grappling with that very honestly, very beautifully. And I'm not, I'm not saying that he should have had different priorities. It's just, you know, I, I kept wanting it to go a little bit deeper. I wanted it to be, again, like a bit more of a messier book, you know. Um, and I think wherever yeah. things get a little bit unwieldy and get away from him, which are those sections when he's talking about medicine, and as Megan pointed out, he's brilliant when he calls out other doctors. He's brilliant when he calls out himself for his callousness um, and how yeah. he's treated people. And right, and those are the sections where I was just like, oh, this is whom the world has lost. This is who. This yeah. is this, this great sensibility. This is a sense of candor. This is the sense. Whereas in other sections, I felt like that there's a certain kind of thinking being performed. Um, and it, it felt a little, you know, and there's a, you know, we can get into the sort of more religious aspects of this book, but there are parts of the book that, that felt to me a little bit like a sermon, you know, and I was less engaged. There. Yeah, I think I was very much where you were, Carl, in the sense that, mm. you know, maybe it's partly, um, I, I do feel very immersed in this literature, and I'm writing a book about illness and my own experience with illness, which is a very different kind of illness right now, and have thought a lot about the medical system and these issues of being a patient and doctor and the, the really broken, corroded patient-doctor relationship. And again, I really think he has so much to offer there. And I felt like there was this incredible kind of shadow book in this book that you could imagine if he hadn't died that he would one day have written, yeah. right, which would have yeah. been a book about being a doctor and would have been just an inestimable contribution, I suspect. He's a humanist and a, and a scientist, and actually in our specialized age, that's really rare. That said, I agree with you. I, I didn't feel like the poetic or the, the moments of literary analysis were the sharpest part of it. And I think that you know, part of what I was getting at with the 10-year, you know, when he's thinking, oh, here's my 10-year plan is, you know, one thing we need to acknowledge is, you know, he died while having just started this book, <laughs> you know, and he wrote it while he was really sick. And it, it does feel like that to me, right? It feels like mm -hmm. there would have been another layer of going through and working right. on the, you know, the, probably, who knows? We don't know what it would have been. But, you know, I can imagine the book this might have ended up becoming, and there are moments where the book is that. And then there are these moments that feel more, I was just saying where he's still kind of in the, the world of the everyday mind being like, here's my plan and not quite, I kind of wanted a little more recognition of or grappling with on the page of 
actually what it was going to mean to die. And I actually thought one of the interesting things about this book is there's a lot of planning. And actually the writing about mortality, there's not actually that much of it. And some of the most powerful parts of it come at the very end where he writes to his daughter. And he really knows at that point he's going to die, but it's very, very short. Yeah. And can I just say, um, I just want, I, I, I'm sure people read this, but I just wanted to remind people of this. You wrote an amazing essay for the Times Book Review in 2013 called Deadlines, which people are looking for other memoirs, about, especially writers writing about their own deaths. Um, and I think there you also sort of look at, I mean, I don't think you wrote about scientists. You wrote about Updike, um, Christopher Hitchens, Marjorie Williams, and a few other people. Um, and yeah. I think there you also get into the artistry of of this. Because, I mean, it is it is a record of something, but it is also a work of art. It should also stand as a work of art, you know? Um, and I think yeah. you, there you sort of get into it. And I would also recommend Katie Royce's book, her new book, The Violet Hour, um, on how people did and, you know, um, writers like from Freud to Sontag did and yeah. didn't sort of embrace their own tests. Um, just because, I mean, I think one of the, the most powerful things I got out of this book was that, you know, we die very idiosyncratically and like everyone else. And it's a very strange thing, you know, the way he dies. Like, I mean, the, the theme that sort of keeps going through this book is that he's a striver, right? Like human beings aren't perfectible, but we can strain towards this asymptote. Um, even Lucy Collins, wife, and this afterward, I thought was just incredible, um, talks about it too. She says, this is a very solitary book. You know, we don't really get this, you know, Paul doesn't talk about his family or his friends. We don't get a sense of this, you know, sense of humor or his capaciousness. It really is just, you know, um, him and his thoughts in this lonely way. But, uh, so yeah, like we do see him planning and sort of striving for meaning and striving for a good death and trying to take care of her. And, you know, that's his way. And at the same time, at the very end, it's just like everybody else. This episode of Slate's Audiobook Club is brought to you by Fun Home. Fun Home is the winner of five Tony Awards, including Best Musical. Based on Alison Bechdel's acclaimed graphic memoir, this groundbreaking Broadway musical tells a refreshingly honest story about seeing your parents through grown-up eyes. The Daily News calls Fun Home an uplifting musical drama of rare intensity, honesty, and beauty that speaks universally about big things that matter, life, love, family, surviving. Get tickets at funhomebroadway.com. Getting back a little bit to, you know, his different registers and how he is both a doctor and a humanist, I I did feel that he sort of writes like a surgeon. Um, I loved when he kept using the verb unzip, like the fluidity and ease with which the flesh unzips um, under the knife or something. And it, it, it seems like when he's writing really well, he has this kind of clear and elegant and direct and fast tone. Like he he gets in and out and it flows and it sounds like a surgeon is writing very precisely and very well. Um, and in the same way that I felt like his doctorness kind of suffused everything, I also thought that I actually sort of enjoyed the first part of the book, maybe a little bit more than the second part. Maybe it just felt a little bit less ragged because he had had more time to work on it. But there is a way in which knowing what was coming colored sort of all the the opening parts of his life that he was using as sort of table setting. And for instance, I was thinking about that moment when he's he goes out to explore Arizona. He grows up in Arizona and it's just this hot desert. Um, and he opens up an irrigation grate and sees these black widow spiders. And to me, that was just such a um, interesting, probably unintentional 
But, you know, you open up the surface and inside is this kind of poisonous mass and there's the hourglass on their backs. And to me, I was thinking, oh, that's the cancer. You know, you you peel off the surface of the skin and then there's the toxicity underneath, like the sort of writhing death. And it just, I, I wish that he had actually had more anecdotes like that that we could sort of use as as gateways into the meaning that he's trying to deliver as opposed to him just talking about the meaning on its face. Yeah, I think, I mean, like, there's another another really great scene for Spider where he talks about how he and his friends used to dangle ants over the wolf spider's nest to coax it out, you know? So anytime, I, I agree with you, anytime we get, like, a scene or something that isn't obviously linked to cancer or to medicine, suddenly we get to see a whole other side of him that sort of makes him more real and sort of, you know, more interesting because... I, I feel like the book sort of flounders the parts when he sort of states things explicitly. For example, this is the sentence I flagged that, like, he's talking about so he and his wife decide to have a child before he dies. And this is how he describes his desire to have a child. He goes, if human relationality formed the bedrock of meaning, it seemed to us that rearing children added another dimension to that meaning. You know, so you get stuff like that, which is just so aloof and cerebral, and it's sort of like... You know, only in the afterward where his wife sort of gives us a scene where we see this child and we see him as a father and we sort of get a sense of, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's like a thing about the that we want to mourn him, too, a little bit. You know, we want to feel like what's been lost. And, you know, I, I missed, I felt like we missed some occasions to do that. I mean, yeah, I agree. I, I think we really, you know, it is such a, um, that afterwards, like, his wife is wonderful and she says something mm-hmm. that is not the book he was going to write. And I... I really did feel that as a reader. And Katie, as you're saying, that's such a kind of um, extraordinary, powerful moment with the Black Widow spiders and that kind of, I think you talked about the pearlescent facts that they that they have. And there are a few moments like that that just really crystallize something about the tactility and intensity of this world also that he is leaving, right? And it does feel almost like this is notes, you know, again, this is notes toward toward the book he's going to write, and it sort of toggles in and out of that more clinical approach, which sometimes um, there's a precision to his writing that's really wonderful, and then sometimes there's still a, an abstraction where, you know, you feel this is a draft. But one thing that I found very interesting about this book is, and, and it's rare in my experience in reading kind of medical, thinking medical literature today, there's a lot of kind of gestural or other gestures toward, you know, the, the the ethical aspect of medicine and bioethics and the moral aspect of medicine. But in a way, a lot of the bioethical literature and other literature doesn't really delve into the more deep moral aspects of medicine and the implications of the healthcare system where, you know, as he so powerfully portrays, you're just so overtired, right? You're so mm-hmm. exhausted. Yeah. You're so pressed for time. There's an extraordinary scene where one of his friends in medical school, you know, is on a rotation with him and she's going into, a, you know, surgical oncology and they're going into a very complicated surgery called a Whipple, which is for pancreatic cancer, which is a, which is a devastating cancer, usually kills you very quickly. And um, if it's not caught early and she goes in and it's a nine-hour operation at the end of the day and she's so tired, she thinks, I really hope this patient has metastases because if the patient has metastases, they don't do the operation. It also means the patient is probably going to die very imminently, right? And she has this thought, I really hope this, you know, when we open this person up, that there's cancer everywhere. 
And in fact, they open the woman, I think it's a woman, I can't remember, up and there's cancer everywhere and she feels relief, right? And then she feels shame. And these moments like that that he not only um, narrates, but then tries to connect to a larger vision of really this moral aspect of medicine that sounds so easy to say, but bizarrely is really not talked about when we talk about healthcare reform, right? And it, th- those moments were what made me just long for, you know, really feel the yeah. weight of his loss. And he seemed like an incredibly tenacious, you know, unusual person who was really determined to try to hold on to the human aspect of medicine in the face of that being kind of devastating for him, right? Day in and day out to really face up to the losses that he was seeing. And I thought that was just kind of a moving testament to his character. You know, and again, this book is a funny thing because one doesn't want to be trollish about it. I do think there's limitations to it, limitations of circumstance. Um, And that also, but then seeing these moments made me think, oh, I wish I could read the book he he might have written. Yeah, and I think he's also just he's also just honest about what brought him to medicine, you know, in a way that I haven't really seen. So I mean, part of it is like, you know, this deeply humanitarian side, but a lot of it is is the thrill of it. It's the excitement, you know. It's this high, and yeah. uh, um, and that's something that I haven't seen quite so openly discussed, you know, that intensity of it and uh, and the power of it, the power of sort of like, he's got this long passage about going through and, you know, leading people through a forest or leading people, you know, so it's, it's all this sort of complicated messianic stuff too that does come out. And I, I agree with you. I mean, if this, if you'd had more time, like, and if this hadn't had to be a memoir of like a very untimely death, this would have been, and, and, and parts of it still are like a really, really interesting and unique, ferociously mm-hmm. honest book about this uh, profession. I was just going to say that one part of his vision of an effective doctor is is someone who is not only tex- technically excellent, and he talks about the Greek word arete, so virtue, um, which is excellence in all things, but he also thinks that doctors are supposed to help patients come to an understanding of what's happening to them and sort of be almost a pastor. Um, and I think at one point he says, if I were more of a religious man, I would have gone into the clergy because what I want to do is stand at the intersection of life and death and see where you know con- consciousness flickers and dims and I want to be at that threshold and you're right, there's there's a tremendous power to that, but there's also this kind of um, metaphysical striving and a desire for, like, the most meaningful possible place that you can be in life. I, I guess to get back to the criticism, criticism of the book, like, feeling him constantly reaching for the most meaningful possible thing is frustrating because you can't always get there. But it, it did seem to be something that mattered to him more than it matters to the average individual. And that was a piece of characterization that was helpful to me reading the book. One of the things that was interesting to me about this book that I haven't seen discussed a lot, which connects to what I've been talking about, is I do think that to be one of these really, really top-level doctors, right, is such a consuming, it's such a consuming experience. I mean, he talks about the fact that he gets to the hospital at 6 a.m. and leaves at 10 p.m., pretty much every day, and a nurse, even one of the nurses that he works with doesn't even know how much he works, right? You know, there are moments in this book that are interesting to me because they assert a world reality that actually seems quite foreign to me. Um, 
and and I sometimes think, okay, you know, again, I would this trajectory he was on from doctor to patient because as a doctor, he thought of himself and he invested quite a lot of time in, you know, being an understanding doctor, one who sat with the patient and made sure that they understood what informed consent was rather than just, you know, shoving the papers over to them, right? He really tried to explain what, what was happening in the surgery, what, you know, what kind of quality of life. And he tried to very much talk with patients about something that Gawande talks about in his last book about end of life, which is one of the things we face when we are dying in this day and age is all these possible medical interventions that will prolong life, but not necessarily prolong it in a way that is meaningful to us. So that one of the things one has to do is figure out, you know, what is meaningful to you? And this is a question that, that Paul has always, the character, you know, the narrator, you know, describes himself having always been interested in. So he's, you know, here this doctor who really cares about what's meaningful to his patients and, and all this. And then he says this thing that I found completely foreign as someone who has been a, a patient for a long time and also with a, a mother who died, in, you know, in and out of a hospital he says that doctors in highly charged fields meet patients at inflected moments, the most authentic moments where life and identity were under threat. Their duty included learning what made that patient, particular patient's life worth living and planning to save those things if possible. This idea that this is the most authentic moment, like I found that so deeply foreign, you know, and I thought, wow, that really speaks in this incredibly powerful way of the the dissonance between the experience you have as a doctor before you've gone through this and then the experience you have as a patient going through it. And I don't know what he means. Like, I think he's trying to get it. It's like a highly charged moment, right? But I don't think it's one of the most authentic moments. I think it's actually in some ways a highly inauthentic moment because you're, as a patient in this world that's so foreign to you, but it's totally on the doctor's terms, right? You know, I think these are some of the things, you know, everybody understands the profession in a different way, right? And he's completely, you know, he, he discusses his as a calling and stuff like that. And I can see how this is how he understands or has, you know, chose to understand what he does and the people that he needs in those moments. Slate's Audiobook Club is also brought to you by Audible.com. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audio programs from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, and business information providers. Unlike a streaming or rental service, with Audible, you own your books. And one book I would recommend is Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. If you liked When Breath Becomes Air, um, you will definitely get a lot out of Being Mortal, which touches on the same themes of medicine and mortality. Just go to audible.com slash ABC and browse the over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash ABC. That's audiblepodcast.com slash ABC and get started today. Yeah, I was also struck by the part when he says, my highest ideal was not saving lives. Everyone dies eventually, but guiding a patient or family to an understanding of death or illness it's a part of me, the sort of pragmatist, was saying, all right, philosopher king, if I come to <laughs> a hospital, I would like your priority to be to save my life, not to help me sort of grok the complexities of what exactly is happening to me physically and spiritually. But I also appreciate that what he meant was, I think, that, you know, when his tools as a doctor are failing, there's still that there's still more he can do as this person in a kind of privileged position this doctor with knowledge of the body and thus I think he thinks of the soul too. And part of what they're trying to contend with is that 
in such a limited amount of time to explain to the family, here's what's happening here, what your choices are. And to the family, it's still very abstract. But I think for these doctors who are thinking about, you know, what is our responsibility, it starts to feel like they're almost violating the Hippocratic Oath sometimes when they're prolonging life, you know, because the quality of life is just so, it's, it's horrific. Anyway, so I, that's a really fascinating moment, and I totally get it. Like, definitely don't want to die. It's a, it's a tension that I think is really fascinating as a culture we need to reckon with, which is, right, we don't really want the doctor. They're not priests. Like, we don't really want them to be the one to make the decision with us. On the other hand, we kind of need them to think the way that he's trying to think there, because otherwise we end up in these horrific situations. Yeah. Sorry, Carl, I cut like you off. No, 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 no. I just wanted to go back to... to something you said before, which is, again, like, this is, like, you know, at least, I think for most of us, and you know, for me, especially, like, a dispatch from a world I don't know and I'm completely unfamiliar with, right? And his relationship to death and the body, I mean, it, it's constantly changing. As, as, this is what I'm wildly speculating, but it, it must change, right? If you're a doctor, you're both, you know, you have to, on some level, be inured to in immense amounts of suffering, but at the same time, you're probably more keenly aware and sensitive to it than other people. You know, that's your terrain, that's your workplace, that's your day-to-day. And I think I was trying to figure out why there have been so many, uh, some, some of which Megan mentioned in her piece, you know, great uh, essays and books about death and dying. Um, I was trying to figure out why is it that the journalists tend to be so unsentimental? Like, you look at Christopher Hitchens' book, Mortality, or Jenny Biskey has a book coming out, um, yeah. Uh, Sontag, of course. And uh, I find that the doctors are the ones, like if you look at Oliver Sacks' last few pieces, or you look at, you know, the moments of this book that feel so much more flooded with feeling and so much more willing to, like, play with some platitudes, or, and not in a, in a cheap way, but in a, in a real way, in a real way to sort of say that, like, you know, I'm, I'm dying and everything seems more vivid, or everything, you know, like these sorts of... Mm-hmm. And I couldn't quite figure that out, and I think maybe it does come back to that tension between being both so accustomed to it and more sensitive to it than anybody else. And maybe maybe also that they can't be in denial in quite the same yeah. way, you know. That's right. that, that he has an amazing thing where he talks about um, how he accepts the death initially and then as, as the treatment works, that's when he kind of goes into some denial. Anyway, they didn't know you were going to... Oh, no, I just wanted to um, read that passage on 121 where he says... Um, Death, so familiar to me in my work, was now paying a personal visit. Here we were, finally face to face, and yet nothing about it seemed recognizable. Standing at the crossroads where I should have been able to see and follow the footprints of the countless patients I had treated over the years, I saw instead only a blank, a harsh, vacant, gleaming white desert, as if a a sandstorm had erased all trace of familiarity. And I thought that was so beautiful because it got at sort of he is so acquainted with the night. He's so acquainted with with death, and yet death is such a stranger to him um, from this new perspective. And it throws him back to to the days before his medical training. You know, it throws him back to that vast desert in Arizona, the blank, harsh, vacant, gleaming white desert. It, it sort of strips him of all the intellectual knowledge that he's acquired in the meantime and sends him back there. Um, and he is, you know, equal to anyone who's received a terminal, a terrible diagnosis like that. Can we step back for a moment? I would be so fascinated. I know we have to bring it to the close soon, but I would be so fascinated to talk. And, and maybe this is just my, um, you know, the hazard of a kind of career obsession with death, but I would be so fascinated to talk about the reception of this book and its context mm-hmm. because 
one of the things I really thought about as I was writing The Long Goodbye and that I'm thinking about now that I'm writing about chronic illness, and, and in both books, one of the things I'm very interested in is the difficulty our culture has in recognizing mortality, grief, illness, these very, very painful topics that there's an almost kind of American, let's muscle through and shy away from it. You know, let's muscle through it. And if we can't, then let's not look too closely at it, right? And I'm very fascinated by how successful this book has been, um, also in the context of other illness uh, memoir literature. You know, if we think about, you know, so what is it about this book that, that has made it so successful when others might not have been, you know, and in what kind of doses can we take our lessons about mortality? Like he has a great image of, you know, patients can only take a terrine of soup right. at a time, right? They can yeah. only take like a spoonful of the terrine at a time that there's a yeah. sense of, yeah. So I just wondered what your guys' sense of what it is about this book that made it a bestseller as opposed to, you know, there's many, many others. And certainly there's wonderful literature, you know, of living with AIDS that, that helped change that movement and how we saw it and the disease, but it didn't have the same kind of popular. This is a little more in the Tuesdays with Maury kind of level of popularity, right? I have theories that are charitable and uncharitable, so I'll go with my charitable theories, which is that, you know, there is something very unique about this book in that, um, you know, you do you do pick it up because you do, I mean, again, it's like with the Gawande and there's a personal element that you also feel like, you know, he will be able to take us even further into this mystery as a doctor and as somebody who studied it. Um, so there's that idea and there's the idea of like, uh, it is something that it is, it is a death that feels so unfair, you know? I mean, yeah. he was so young, he'd worked so hard and, uh, it, it just, and, and like the way that the book is also written in it sort of like very much uses a lot of Christian imagery, a lot of Greek imagery. So it has this idea of, you know, we're standing on a mountain, me and Lucy, and we can see everything and now it's all being taken from us. And, so I think it, it does, you know, um, call on sort of, you know, these older themes and sort of like older stories and books. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess I also, I wonder if like one of the reasons that, you know, it is, it is also so popular is because he is so blameless, you know? Like it is, it is such a, he, he, there's something saintly about this book. There's something saintly about this man. And there's something saintly about the way that he comes across, you know, even though like, there are moments where sort of he'll confess to sort of, you know, oh, you know, I'm, you know, working too hard and, you know, I'm not able to spend enough time with my patients, but there is something other than that, you know, almost archetypally sort of saintly and uh, about this, like, young, beautiful, heroic man and his wife and, and all of this sort of this tragedy coming. So I think it sort of might, you know, um, have an appeal in that kind of yeah, way. Yeah, that's so beautifully said. I also think that there's sort of a quality of irony here, not just tragedy, but irony in the reversals. The the doctor becomes the patient, the teacher becomes the student. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something there in the sort of overturning of our expectations that uh, adds to our sense of the fragility of life and the mutability of, of everything that we think is stable. And I think those two sort of strands weave together to sort of make his larger point about mortality really effectively. But I also agree that there's sort of a quality to him as as a tragic figure that is especially sympathetic. Um, and I think I think in the afterward, um, his wife mentioned something. I think Lucy says something about like, I want this book to be for people so that they can see what's coming. Like I, I'm I'm bungling this, but like that. So when they're in in those shoes, they'll be like, okay, this is where I am. These are the choices. These are some of the questions you have. These are some of the decisions you have to make. You know. Philosophical and yeah. medical and otherwise, so it really does invite people in in this particular special way. I think. Yeah, I think all of that seems 
so true and illuminating about it. It, it does strike me too that he's. I was thinking he he probably was an amazing doctor because he he kind of is the guide you want at least in some ways in this moment because he's trying to think about the meaning of it all, but he's also you know he and maybe this is a factor of how quick the end came from. But there's in a way it is that spoonful we're given, right? He doesn't overwhelm us with the mortality, so you get these pieces of it. And it's very sad that there's this redemptive quality of the child and the marriage being kind of saved by the illness in some in some way. And he has this incredible resilience, honestly, that is com- I found comforting. And I think some of the books I've read are just tougher, right, in a way, to read. And there is a kind of, um, you know, humanistic optimism here that is recuperative. Yeah, that's really, that's beautifully said as well. Um, so I guess we should go around and um, say whether we would recommend this book. Um, Megan, would you? Yeah, I would recommend it. And I would actually particularly recommend it to doctors. I, I think really everyone who works in the healthcare industry should read this book and others. There are others should read too. But I think this, this, to me the most important work this book does is this work of trying to synthesize the moral mission of medicine with a very real, under, you know, firsthand, non-sentimental understanding of the burden that we are, you know, I think the unfair burden that we are placing on doctors today. And the way that that, you know, understanding led him to have certain insights as a patient and the way that being a patient led him to have insights as a, as a doctor that he also couldn't always put to use because of the system. So I think that is just a really... Um, extraordinary part of this memoir and I think you know for the rest of us those who read this memoir and and like it there's a lot out there that I would also I would also recommend but I think this is a very you know a a good starting place yeah I agree I think that I would recommend it for those reasons and I think also that there's also something really strange and lovely in this book where he sort of talks about um, how grand illnesses are supposed to be clarifying but you know as we've talked about now given you know, certain illnesses and certain sort of medical interventions. He's like, I don't know if I have, you know, 10 weeks, 10 months, 10 years. And so how do I plan for that? Like, you know, um, and so he's a doctor colleague, friend of his, who tells him, you know, relax, you're trying to figure out your values. And I think that there's there's Mm -hmm. lovely stuff in here about figuring out one's values and sort of updating them all the time. And I think that that's something that I found um, lovely. So yeah, I think it's it's a beautiful it's a beautiful book, and I think that and as Megan said, I think has so much to say to doctors about what patients need. Yeah, um, and I agree with you both. I also think I do stand by the idea that it's it's a textbook, that it, it's a work of education, and in some ways he wants to be our Virgil, sort of guiding us not only as a doctor but as someone who treads the path that we all must tread, and it's. There's a generosity to that that I think is incredibly moving and that kind of shines through on every page, really. And it's um, I sometimes feel like you read books and you expect that only writers write books. And to me, this maybe because it it felt a little unpolished in some ways, just because of the constraints of time and circumstance. But I felt like this was a human being writing a book, not like some other species of writer writing a book. And and I related a lot to to the person behind the prose. And so, um, yes, I also definitely recommend this book. And with that, I think that is the end of our audio book club. But thank you so much, both of you, for uh, for joining us. Uh, this was great. Okay, thanks, guys. Pleasure. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. 
You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Slate's Audiobook Club is part of the Panoply Network. Find out more about all our great podcasts at panoply.fm. Our producer is Jason DeLeon. Thanks for the assist, Dan Bloom. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. For Parul Segal and Megan O'Rourke, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>